Hey everyone, so this is a conversation with Nader Hashemi and Danny Postel. Nader is a director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Denver, and Danny is assistant director of the Center for International and Area Studies at Northwestern University. We primarily spoke about their book, Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of, of the Middle East, uh, which was published in 2017. It's a rather important book, especially in my field, but I wanted to have them on to sort of bring it to a wider audience. So we started with the discussion over what sectarianization actually means and how does it differ from sectarianism. We discussed the legacy of 1979 with the Iranian revolution. We then kind of fast forwarded to today and looked at the case of Bahrain and the case of Syria as two regimes that found themselves utilizing sectarianism and therefore promoting a process that we are calling sectarianization. Uh, we also discussed like how sectarianization is not actually just top down. It can be bottom up. It can be like multi-directional, essentially. Uh, I then asked them like how do we actually balance the need to be specific without generalizing too much? And we sort of then had a wider discussion over how sectarianization differs in Lebanon and Iraq compared to Saudi Arabia, Iran, Syria, and Bahrain. There were a number of other examples, I won't bore you too much now with the summary, and I have to emphasize that you do not need to be an expert in anything to follow this conversation. That's kind of the entire point of this podcast, right? So that's it from me. I hope you enjoy it, and take care, everyone. This episode was first published for monthly Patreon supporters. To become a monthly Patreon supporter, please head out to patreon.com slash times or check the website for other methods. And if you cannot donate, you can still support this project by sharing with your friends and family and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The music of this podcast is by Torah Beat. Thank you for listening and take care. My name is Nader Hashemi. I'm the director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Denver, um, and I teach Middle East and Islamic politics. My name is Danny Postel. I'm the assistant director of the Center for International and Area Studies at Northwestern University. And um, I think that's, yeah, that's that's it. Awesome. So I got, I got you to want to talk about a book that you published, uh, that you co-edited in 2017. And it's called uh, Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. So let's start with just like from the beginning to anchor this conversation. What does sectarianization actually mean and how is it different from sectarianism, which most people would at, at least know? So. Nader and I had been deeply immersed in debates about the Syrian conflict, um, starting in pretty much when uh, it began in 2011. And in 2012, um, we hosted, we, we began to organize an international conference around the Syrian uh, crisis. Uh, at the University of Denver, where we both were at the time. And one of the things that really struck us, and then eventually a book came out of that conference titled The Syria Dilemma that came out in the fall of 2013. But one of the things that really started to strike us as we were immersed in the debate and the research about Syria was how often um, arguments both from the right and sadly from the left and and from the center that across the ideological spectrum the narrative about what the Syrian conflict was about so often reverted to these tropes these tired lazy orientalist 
tropes about, well, that's just how these people are. I mean, what do you expect from a region awash in sectarian hatreds that go back centuries, if not indeed millennia, as Obama said in his final State of the Union address. Um, and you saw this across the spectrum, as I say. So you had like Fox News, of course, talking about, you know, these people are savages animated by religious passions. Um, they've always hated each other. So that's just, you know, you just have to let it bleed. That's just what they do in that part of the world. You had people like Thomas Friedman in the center uh, talking about, you know, yeah, he wrote a column on Yemen where he said something like, you know, how can you expect a conflict based on a dispute over who the rightful heir to the, the prophet Muhammad should have been? How do, you, how do you expect a conflict rooted in an issue like that to be resolved? Um, this was a, a gaining traction, this sort of thing. And then even on the left, you heard people like Patrick Coburn uh, of The Independent use almost the identical language, but framed in a kind of with a left slant. And so it just really struck us. We were having conversations in, in the Center for Middle East Studies in Denver about our next project. What do we do after the Syria book? And we, we realized we really needed to do something to confront and combat this growing sort of sectarian, this reliance on ancient sectarian hatreds as an explanation for the conflicts um, gripping the Middle East. Uh, this, this narrative had become so pervasive and so problematic and wildly oversimplified and distorted what was actually happening in the region. So that was the impetus for it. But then we realized, okay, we need, we need to make this argument, but we, we need really concrete, deep dive case studies that go into tremendous texture about the core cases, right? So Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Lebanon. Nader and I are not experts on all of those countries. So we realized this was going to be an edited volume and we were going to uh, tap uh, the leading thinkers, the leading scholars who study those countries. Um, and to our tremendous surprise, very pleasant surprise, uh, the sort of A-list people we reached out to all said yes. And we ended up with this volume. And, and so the, the impetus there was not only, in other words, to combat this pervasive um, distortion of the, the, the ancient sectarian hatreds narrative, we not only wanted to debunk this, but we wanted to provide an alternative explanation for what actually was driving the intensification of sectarian conflict across the region over the last several years, let's say, you know, and we can, we can talk about how many years, right? The, the key years we identify in the book are 1979, 2003, 2011 and beyond. Um, but that was the basic impetus was to combat this pervasive narrative that had taken hold in Western capitals and in the pundit class and even in academia to some extent, but also to provide an alternative set of explanations for what was driving uh, this, this horrific process. Um, and so thus the, the term sectarianization we felt captured 
that this is not some kind of fixed trans-historical frozen in history uh, you know, phenomenon, but actually that the intensification of sectarian violence and sectarian conflict across the region was a process, a process being driven by very specific actors and forces, regimes, movements, um, and the like. And so that's where really the project came from. Yeah, I, I would just add that, you know, we coined the term sectarianization as an active process shaped by political actors operating within specific contexts, pursuing political goals that involve the deliberate mobilization of popular sentiments around particular identity markers, in this case, sectarian identity markers. Uh, we acknowledge that there are class dynamics at play here, uh, fragile and failed states um, feed into this um, process and also geopolitical rivalries shape the sectarianization process. And we contrast the term sectarianization with what Danny just said, with the more common term sectarianism that sort of presupposes that there has always been this, you know, trans historical enduring sort of force within the politics of the Arab and Islamic world uh, going back to the seventh century that has allegedly shaped um, the politics of, of this part of the world. And we focus very much on the theme of political authoritarianism as being central to the sectarianization process. It provides the um, social conditions, a certain set of political incentives for political actors to play the sectarian game. Um, one of our contributors coins the term sectarian entrepreneurs. There's people who benefit politically from playing the sectarian a card as a way of um, as a way of advancing their own political interests, um, and you know, famously, we play upon that uh, that statement by uh, von Clausewitz, um, who you know talked about war being the continuation of politics by other means. We argue in the book that um, uh, paraphrasing Clausewitz's uh, aphorism about war being the continuation of politics by other means, we argue that sectarian conflict in the Middle East is really the perpetuation of political rule via identity mobilization. And so in, in a nutshell, we say that fundamentally what's going on here, pushing back against a very popular mainstream view that these conflicts are fundamentally about uh, politics and political interests, not necessarily um, piety. But we do acknowledge that you know we're not into this um, uh, framing of sectarian relations as being always romantic and wonderful and peaceful between uh, different religious sects in the Middle East. We do acknowledge doctrinal differences and tensions, um, but critically what we do, and I think this is a, an important contribution, we try to historicize um, sectarian conflict in the Middle East today. We, says it, we, say, we say specifically it has a history, and that history really begins, at least in terms of its modern manifestation, in 1979. And the other key turning points were, you know, 2003, and then 2011. And so if you want to understand this topic, you have to have a sense of um, the underlying political dynamics that are driving this form of conflict, but also you have to have a, a good sense of history. Um, and and, and we, 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 we chart that history from 1979 moving forward. And just to underscore why those years, I mean, identifying 1979, obviously the Iranian revolution and its aftershocks across the region, I mean, it's not as if sectarian identities 
come into existence in 1979. Obviously, sectarian identities uh, have a very uh, have a much longer history. That's not the argument. The argument is that the lethal politicization and mobilization of sectarian identities um, across the region, the intensification of sectarian conflict in the region, really takes on a um, is is exacerbated and intensified following 1979. That doesn't mean that everything was idyllic and without conflict before 1979, but it really intensifies sharply following 1979. And so this, by starting with 1979, this flies in the face of this ancient hatreds narrative that wants to take us back centuries, if not millennia. And what we argue is that basically the intensification and lethalization of sectarian identities across the region is a fairly recent phenomenon. It's like 40 you know, a little bit over 40 years old. Thanks for that. And one of the, so one of the themes I would say of like this project, this podcast is looking at the links between authoritarian regimes around the world and just how authoritarianism manifests itself in, in different ways. And uh, now that you mentioned the Clausewitz aphorism and I'll, I'll repeat it here. Um, Sorry, uh, but a war as a continuation of politics by other means, sectarian conflict in the Middle East today is a perpetuation political rule via identity mobilization, end quote. So to sort of link it to the previous question about the difference between sectarianization and sectarianism, and I think you've explained this very well, can we also argue that sectarianization itself is an authoritarian process, that it's an act of violence, uh, symbolic first maybe, but then obviously manifesting itself uh, physically in many, in many contexts? I mean, um... It's not an act of violence in and of itself, per se. It often leads to acts of violence and bloodshed and conflict and tension. Um, the authoritarian context, at least in the, uh, in, the, in the region of the Middle East, is absolutely essential. Because we argue, um, you know, when we trace the history of this, that there are political interests at stake that have deliberately perpetuated um, uh, sectarian identity mobilization. Um, as a way of achieving certain political goals. Um, and this um, has its um, ups and downs in terms of the regional rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia, um, but it takes on a new dimension and it sort of intensifies, um, uh, not coincidentally, uh, after the 2011 Arab Spring, when those uh, pro-democracy protests rocked the foundation of authoritarianism in the Middle East and various regimes as a way of deflecting demands for political change play the sectarianization card. And so one of the best essays in the book is the chapter on Syria that sort of um, chronicles exactly how Bashar al-Assad um, tried to deflect demands for political change uh, by playing the sectarianization card um, in various ways to um, divide the opposition um, to send a message to the West that what's happening here has nothing to do about democracy, but it's about extremism and uh, radicalization and extreme sectarianism. Um, so, you know, you can't understand, we argue, you cannot understand um, uh, the dynamics of sectarian conflict in the Middle East today over the last 40 years, unless you understand um, the broad theme of political authoritarianism and how that has a certain logic and a set of incentives that produces these types of mobilizations um, 
um, as a way of achieving political goals. And the political goal primarily is, you know, um, obtaining political power or retaining political power, not having to sort of give it up. And in, in the Arab Spring, you know, is 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 a perfect illustration of this. You know, all the countries play it in different ways. Um, you know, Iran's Iran's process of sectarianization was different than Saudi Arabia, but the fundamental drivers and goals were the same. It was rooted in a certain authoritarian conception of politics. And I mean, the best example that often gets ignored, and Danny and I are very sensitive uh, about this particular case study, and we have a very good chapter in the book, um, is the case of Bahrain, where, you know, you, if you if you see and you follow exactly what happened, it was a, um, it was sort of a case study of how you know, the, the royal family in Bahrain played the sectarianization card as a way of dividing the opposition and staying in power. Yeah, and that case, the, the contrast of those two cases, Syria and Bahrain, which are in some ways these sort of um, test cases, you know, there you have um, also a regional rivalry playing out. You have Saudi Arabia and Iran um, on opposite sides of this. So in the case of the Syrian uprising, as Nader mentioned, and as Paulo Pinto, the author of that chapter in the book, um, uh, illustrates really vividly, right, the, um, the uprising in Syria, which started uh, as a non-sectarian, some would say cross-sectarian, um, um, or, or even anti-sectarian. We can get into the distinctions of those different terms, but basically you had members of multiple uh, religious and ethnic groups, and perfectly, you know, and people who were not, uh, uh, who had no sectarian identification at all, out on the streets protesting. This, if you look at the slogans and the demands of the Syrian uprising, they had literally nothing to do with sect, right? They were the same, essentially the same demands that we saw in Tunisia and Egypt, demands for freedom, democratic rights, social justice, and dignity and the end to dictatorship. Those were the demands and the slogans that animated the Syrian protests in the spring and summer of 2011. And of course, how did the Assad regime respond? By saying that this was an Al-Qaeda, you know, Sunni extremist foreign terrorist plot against the, nation, the Syrian nation, which the Assad family protects, right? And its great benevolence. Um, absolutely false, but of course, then they took steps to essentially um, make, uh, uh, you know, to create a self-fulfilling prophecy, letting Salafis out of their prisons, um, pumping this sectarian narrative and this, uh, this message of fear into um, Syrian society, right? That the, the extremists are coming to get you, they're going to uh, kill all of the minorities, particularly the Alawis, also the Christians, the Druze, and so we need to rally around the regime. Um, we know that this this narrative was completely uh, false, and and the messaging was designed to, as Nader says, preserve the regime in the face of a popular protest movement that had nothing to do with sect. But over time, sadly, as Paulo Pinto demonstrates in the chapter, over time, this narrative's although it started out as completely false and in bad faith, it became less false over time, um, partly because of the regime's own sectarianization of the conflict, letting Salafis out of prison, etc., cetera, in, in, in the hopes of actually uh, uh, drenching, saturating the protest movement with 
uh, religious uh, fanaticism, but also because there were people in the opposition who took the bait, who you know did actually um, uh, that did embrace and reproduce these sectarian messages. And partly that was in response to the brutality of the regime, of course, but the fact is that this then just had this kind of multiplier effect. So then you do have Salafi uh, uh, imams, preachers, you know, giving these anti-Alawi and anti-Christian messages, particularly anti-Alawi. And then this in turn scares elements of the population and you have this feedback loop and, and a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, and in Bahrain, you have like the reverse in Bahrain, you have again a a, a very uh, a non-sectarian uh, popular movement. It was actually even milder in Bahrain in the sense that, like in Tunisia and Egypt and Syria, people are calling for the downfall of the regime. Right um, in Bahrain, they weren't even calling for that. They were calling for a constitutional monarchy. They were calling for very mild reforms. And yet, how did the Bahraini regime and its Saudi sponsors uh, uh, respond? exactly the same way, although with different um, uh, villains, as the Assad family uh, responded to their uprising, which is to say this is a foreign plot inspired by Iran, inspired by uh, Shia terrorists, and uh, the Shia menace is coming to get you. And this is basically how the Saudis responded to, to, to all sorts of protests. Uh, Madawi al-Rashid has a great chapter on that in our book on sectarianism as counter-revolution. Um, so the point being, Joey, that um, you have authoritarian regimes across the region of even conflicting, right, authoritarian regimes on different sides of this geopolitical rivalry, this regional rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. These two regimes may be on different, they may be at each other's, uh, they, may, they may be adversaries, but they fundamentally shared this authoritarian regime response to democratic um, protests in the region. They claimed that they were foreign plots. They sectarianized, in other words, they, they, through narrative rhetorical strategies, they sectarianized um, these, these, these issues. And in a way, you know, these became self-fulfilling prophecies. And you had, so, but what I'm trying to say is that yes, the behavior of, authoritarian regimes is central to our argument, but it's not the whole story. There are other forces, other what I call vectors of sectarianization. Sometimes sectarianization is very top-down, regime-driven. Sometimes it's a bit more bottom-up. Um, and usually it's a combination of both. But in, in the case of Syria and Bahrain, the regime is not, in, is, is not exclusively responsible for the entire sectarianization process in those two cases, but it's principally, it's the principal culprit. And then you have other cases where you have sec sectarian entrepreneurs like Zarqawi, you know, who's kind of a sectarian soldier of fortune going from country to country, um, intensifying sectar the sectarian narrative and strategy. Um, so sectarianization is a multi-dimensional, polyvalent, uh, phenomenon driven largely by regimes, but but also has this social bottom-up grassroots dimension as well. The number of points you you made, uh, a in terms of the Syrian opposition, some a case study I know more than some of the other examples. In retrospect, it it seems fairly obvious that they took debate as as then you described it, and 
indeed not just on the sectarianism front, but also on the ethnic front, uh, like subscribing to the Arabization uh, narrative, or at least to some the Syrian version of pan-Arabism, as we might call it, and failing to appeal to to parts of the of the Kurdish population of Syria. Although in the in the early days that was more accessible, let's say, than, than what happened later on. And I'll try and have an episode on that specific phenomenon. One thing that also made me think of is just the, the specific roles of these either middlemen or these sectarian entrepreneurs, as you call them. In the case of Lebanon, which is obviously the case that the, 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 the country I know best uh, of these, it's very easy to focus on, let's say, the, the Amal and Hezbollah supporters that go and beat up protesters and not chant like Shia, Shia in a very sectarian way, et cetera, et cetera. These are sort of the, the, the how do you call it, like the foot soldiers in some ways. But for the entire infrastructures to even exist in the first place, what, you might, what we might call a sectarian infrastructure, you sort of need all of them. You need the people in, in between. You need, you need those that actually ma- maintain up until fairly recently, now it's sort of collapsing with the economic crisis in Lebanon, um, the sort of clientelist networks. And those clientelist networks are sort of like a material basis for sectarianism. And when we only focus on the surface level, and I know, of course, you've published Basel Salouk, so you know, you know this very well. Um, this is how it is actually maintained. And this is, I guess, my question before about the, the forms of the, whether it's an act of violence, I'm, I'm using violence in a more structural level rather than, 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 how we usually think of violence. But anyway, it sort of takes me to the link that I wanted to make with the, the, the war on terror, the narrative of the war on terror, because it's very, you two are based in the US and even, I mean, honestly, even in the Arab world, many people think of, when they think of the war on terror, of course, they think of the American war on terror. They think of the invasion of Iraq. They think of the post 9-11 landscape. And of course, that, that's a massive, massive part of it. Um, but many of the other regimes, many of the regimes in the area happily took over that narrative to suit their own purposes. And not just regimes, but also militias like Hezbollah and also, you know, et cetera. And it tends to be almost counterintuitive for many people. I had written this essay recently about Hezbollah's own war on terror, because Hezbollah describes, uh, you know, Sunnis they don't like as takfiris and Christians they don't like as agents of Israel and Shias they don't like as embassy Shias. They use different uh, slurs and terminologies, but it's the same it's the same thing. These are the others. These are people that, you know, they don't have any legitimate demands, et cetera, et cetera. And it works in the same way. And then you just flip the, the flip side of this is the Bahrain example, as you mentioned. So for me, I guess my question here, and that's a bit of a, of a awkward pivot, I guess, but I'm always a bit, um, and you, you two do a very good job in the book of dispelling that problem, but it's still a problem of how do we balance out the need to be very specific. So like focus on Lebanon, focus on Syria, focus on et cetera, et cetera, without at the same time, uh, you know, running the risk of essentializing, of dealing with, you know, the whole problem with area studies as, as can, as I'm sure you two know very well, a problem that's very common in these fields. So how, how at least in, for, in you, at least for you two, how do you go about balancing out the importance of being specific without being too general? Let's put it that way. Now, that's a great question. Um, one of the things that we do um, to avoid the trap of essentialism is we try and historicize the topic of sectarian conflict. And we push back very strongly um, in our introduction 
uh, against this thesis that it goes back thousands of years and this is just how these people are and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and many people have contributed to that thesis. So you have to historicize it, you have to, you know, um, trace its history and you have to be also aware of the nuances and the different sort of shapes this historical um, process has taken. I mean, sectarian conflict in 1979 is not exactly um, the same as it was in 2011 and each country has its own story. Right, that's the other element. So there are broad similarities, the authoritarian context, the pursuit of political gain. But if you really want to uh, understand what's going on, you have to look at each individual case study on its own terms and point out similarities and differences. I think that's the way you do it. Um, so as after we published the book and we gave a few talks, it dawned upon me that I think our thesis is still valid, but it's more valid in some cases than in others. Um, I think our, our, our thesis on sectarianization applies much better to the politics of Iran, Saudi Arabia, uh, regimes in Syria and Bahrain. Uh, when you look at Iraq, which is a major case, and you look at uh, Lebanon, you're looking at sort of very different internal dynamics in the sense that the states have basically collapsed there. You don't have a strong authoritarian state in the same way uh, that you do in Syria or in Iran or in Saudi Arabia. You have a lot more complexity in terms of the manifestation of sectarianism as sort of these broad, you know, patron clientelist networks that mobilize people and keep ruling elites in power. So I think that's basically how you do it. You have sort of, you historicize, but then you have to also look at the individual case studies and acknowledge, I think, where our thesis, at least in our case, has much more applicability. And I think it has more applicability in the, in the, in the countries that I mentioned, specifically Syria, Bahrain, Iran, Saudi Arabia. Um, and um, when you get to the other important cases of Iraq and of Lebanon, there's a lot more complexity going on there. So Joey, you know the, the Lebanese case much better than either of us does. Um, but you mentioned Basil Salouk's uh, essay in the book, his chapter on what he calls the architecture of sectarianization in Lebanon. Um, you know, he really does, uh, I think, I mean, I would be interested in hearing your take. I mean, we, we were tremendously impressed uh, by Basil Salouk's uh, analysis. Uh, he actually has two chapters in the book, one on Lebanon and one on the sort of geopolitics of sectarianization, uh, or what you might call the regional geopolitics of sectarianization uh, across the Middle East. And I think what makes the Lebanese case so interesting and, and in some ways so instructive is also that because sectarian sectarian um, fault lines in Lebanon are perhaps less recent. They, 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 they didn't just erupt all of a sudden um, the way they have done, uh, let's say in, in Syria. Um, they they are, have been institutionalized, right? Um, they're in a, in a sense baked into the cake of the post-Civil War arrangement, right? The, uh, the, the, the the architecture of power in Lebanon actually, you know, uh, uh, grants these uh, different sectarian groups the particular dispensations of political power that they enjoy today. And so there's a sense in which, you know, since since the since the 1990s, you've had that you have this sectarian system that's in place. It's a legal constitutional order that that actually enshrines sectarian difference. And as a result of this, um, you have this kind of revolt against sectarianism. You've written about this very lyrically yourself, Joey, um, in the context of the October 
uprising, October 2019 uprising, which you argued, I think correctly, uh, is an uprising in some ways against sectarianism. And so you had, this goes, it didn't start in 2019. You had the garbage protest, the you stink protests in 2015 in Lebanon, which also brought people together from across sectarian divides, focusing on the delivery of services, right? Material issues, um, class politics, social justice, economic policy, um, and, 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 and a rejection, an explicit rejection of the sectarian logic that's superimposed, not by an authoritarian dictatorship, but, but in this case, by this sort of consociational democracy in Lebanon, which makes it complicated. But one of the reasons that Lebanon is so instructive in my view, and perhaps Iraq now as well, is that you have social movements, particularly of the young who are sick of the sectarian system. They're sick of the way in which political life, and perhaps this gets back to your previous question, Joey, maybe this is a form of violence, um, the way in which your identity, your existence is defined by the state in sectarian terms, right? As Basil Saluch emphasizes in his chapter, to be Lebanese today, you have no rights as a human being. You have rights as a member of a sectarian group. That has also been the case uh, increasingly in Iraq since 2003, four, five. So you have now, people are realizing this doesn't work. You're not delivering. This sectarian's arrangement actually is, it coincides with failed states, failed policies. Um, and so you have these uprisings that are, again, we can, we can call them cross-sectarian, multi-sectarian, um, post-sectarian, Fanar Haddad in his chapter talks about the post-sectarian uh, phase of, of post-2003 Iraq. Um, or as our friend Usama Maktisi in, in his chapter and in discussions we've had with him, he prefers the term anti-sectarian because he doesn't like the term cross-sectarian because it implies, oh yeah, we're, you have these different sectarian, you know, people belonging to different sectarian groups coming together for common purposes, but it still accepts the idea that your fundamental, um, the foundation of your existence is your sectarian identity. Anti-sectarian suggests that you reject the very logic, the very notion uh, that your political existence depends on your membership in a sect. And so what, what I'm saying is that I think Lebanon and Iraq are showing us through the special cases of where sectarian has become more formalized, more institutionalized, people are rejecting it and showing the way towards a kind of whatever you want to call it, desectarianization, post-sectarian or anti-sectarian future. Yeah, thanks for that. I, I would say that Osama Magdisi will be a guest on the podcast as well at some point in the near future. Um, bringing up the, the context of Lebanon, of course, I will try not to always go back to that. It's just obviously what I'm most familiar with. Most people, I think, I've at least I've learned, don't know just how deeply entrenched sectarianism is in the legal code. And that's something that I feel, um, if you don't know how, like just to what extent, it, it, it kind of, sim like, you you just can't get the full picture. For example, I'll give a very concrete example. I, I can't vote where I'm from. I have to vote in a different area of Lebanon because that's where quote unquote my family is technically, or I mean, legally originally from. There's a patriarchal logic to this because obviously it's not where the mother is from, it's where the father is from, et cetera, et cetera. And you, you can't vote other than through your sect. That's just one of the, way, one of the many, many ways it's very difficult to organize independently. 
and independent activists have to put forward uh, a Shia person and a Christian person to run for that seat or that seat, et cetera, et cetera. And that obviously makes it more difficult to organize because, well, they are just much better at playing that game. It is their, their game. They are the ones who, you know, the, it, the, the, game, the game is rigged. And so what, this kind of brings me to a, a also a kind of a concrete question, and I'll, I'll try and preface it uh, and try not to be too long about this. But so I just wanted to get your views on this. Um, about a year ago, I interviewed uh, Fadi Bardawil. He has this book called uh, Revolution and Disenchantment, Arab Marxism and the Binds of Emancipation. We focused a lot on Lebanon, that's because that's what he focuses on as well, especially on a group called Socialist Lebanon, which was active in the 60s. I asked Fadi how he interpreted the, well, then recent moment of October 2019, because this was, I think, in April 2020. Um, and for those listening, that's episode 14. Um, and especially the question of how to deal with sectarianism as activists. So like as secular, leftists, some many liberals, many progressives, many whatever, kind of the only thing that would uh, link many of these people up from different political backgrounds is just like secularism, or at least some kind, some idea of anti-sectarianism. The question of religiosity, the question of the links between someone's faith, someone's personal beliefs, whatever, and sectarianism or sectarianization, maybe you might say, for me is a very interesting one because I, I would sort of cite an Irish joke and I wrote it down because I think it's very relevant to the Lebanese case. So this is the joke. An atheist tourist was walking around Belfast and noticed all the community center events for either Catholics or Protestants. After checking out yet another board, he asked him a staff member, what do you do in this town if you're an atheist? And the staff member replies, well, sir, that depends on whether you're a Catholic atheist or a Protestant atheist. And I mean, I can easily replace that joke with, you know, Shia, Maronite, Sunni, Druze, et cetera, et cetera. There is a class component here. I think if you're middle class, upper class, it's a bit more flexible for you. But the, the general idea stands. And, you know, personally, many people growing up couldn't care less whether I was believing in God or not. What mattered to them was more what are the sort of the social functions that I was performing in my community, in my neighborhood, in my school, in my work, in my family, et cetera, et cetera. Not going to mass once a year was a bigger deal than not going to mass at all, because then you had to at least show, show you, if you see what I mean. So I guess my question is, is, is just that, like the question, the, the topic of religiosity tends to be uh, conflated with sectarianism or with sectarianization. And this can lead to unfortunately very dark conclusions with, you know, basically let's just support the dictator if the dictator, dictator calls himself uh, secular as obviously we see Bashar Assad or with CC, you know, et cetera, et cetera. How do you kind of deal with that topic? Because it is a very sensitive topic in the region as in many other places, but in the, in the Middle East, it is a very sensitive topic. And as activists in Lebanon, in Iraq, it's not an easy one. It's a very difficult one to, to, to approach. Yeah, no, it's, that, that's a great question. I wanna, um, I wanna draw upon something Danny and I sort of discovered when we were working together at the Center for Middle East Studies, uh, some lessons from Tunisia's democratic experiment that I think speak to your question. One of the um, unknown, I think, aspects of Tunisia's democratic transition is that it actually begins a decade before the Arab Spring. And what happens in Tunisia is that um, uh, opposition groups and leaders who oppose the Ben Ali regime started to um, organize a series of 
um, cross-ideological um, meetings in France to try and uh, focus on areas of common grievance and a common strategy for fighting the Ben Ali regime. Uh, if you follow the story, the early meetings were very acrimonious. People who went to those meetings were criticized back home for selling out. <clears throat> but I think the, the big takeaway is that those types of cross-ideological meetings developed uh, some important uh, social capital, uh, political trust that played a significant role after 2011 when they had the first elections and basically it was the, I would argue, moderate uh, secularists and moderate Islamists who were able to own the center of political space, marginalizing the anti-democratic forces on both the secular and religious side. And that navigated Tunisia through its, its stormy waters of the transition period. I think there's lessons there uh, to be learned for countries that have been deeply divided <clears throat> across these lines is to start uh, similar processes of uh, establishing coalitions across these sort of divides and trying to build some sort of political force um, that I think is much more, you know, popular among younger generations and older generations that can start to sort of think through um, this particular problem. I mean, it's more pronounced obviously in Lebanon because as Danny sort of said, it's baked into the very fabric of the country and it doesn't go back just to the end of the civil war. It goes back to the founding of the, of the state itself in the 1940s. I think that's the only hope that I see is that is, but of course it's very difficult because, you know, you don't have the resources, you don't have the emotional pull, you don't have the, you know, opportunity to, to, to break the, the, the sectarian stranglehold that is so powerful and has resources that can mobilize. But other than that, I don't know how you sort of, how you push forward. I think, you know, when, when you were describing what was happening, I think the Tunisian example gives me some food for thought that maybe that's one way forward, but I'm just thinking aloud. Yeah, I absolutely love that example. Nader and I think, I think first learned about that, heard that story of the pre, uh, the, revo the decade leading up to the Tunisian uprising um, from Monica Marks. Monica gave a brilliant talk about that at a conference at Columbia University that was devoted to comparing the Tunisian and Egyptian um, experiences with their uprisings and then uh, very different transitions to democracy. And it came out, by the way, you can maybe put this in the show notes, Joey, it, it appears as a chapter um, in this book. Um, the, the chapter is, this is getting really, I'm geeking out here, just giving you like, um, bibliographic references, but this is important. The chapter is titled Purists and Pluralists, Cross-Ideological Coalition Building in Tunisia's Democratic Transition by Monica Marx. That is a chapter in the book, Democratic Transition in the Muslim World, a Global Perspective, edited by the late Alfred Stepan, the democratic theorist, Al Stepan, who died not long after that book uh, came out. I think it was his final uh, uh, book. So anyway, that story that Nader's talking about of these Tunisian activists, basically Islamists associated with Ennahda and secular socialist, Marxist, leftist types, they met in France um, and they, they had this series of meetings. They, 
they didn't really trust each other. The um, the the secular uh, leftists who agreed to meet with some of the uh, Islamists were denounced by their fellow leftists in Tunisia as traitors and as soft on Islamic fascism. Uh, there were passionate, uh, really acrimonious debates about this on the Tunisian left. Um, but they, the, 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 the happy ending to the story, if you will, is that they all realized, look, we have differences. We're not going to settle our differences. We're not going to agree on deep fundamental questions. That's not going to happen. But there's one thing that we not only need to agree on, we must agree on if we're going to get rid of the dictatorship. We must agree on an end to this torture state. We cannot go back to the conditions. Uh, I mean, one thing they all had in common is that they had been, you know, in, in Ben Ali's torture cells and had experienced the brutality of that regime. And, in, you know, Monica Marx ends up arguing that these conversations, these kind of confidence building um, encounters in the decade leading up to the revolution, which were not a cakewalk. I mean, there were a lot of problems. Um, I think they, the talks broke down a few times, but as a result of these meetings, despite all their differences, they learned how to basically trust each other and work through their differences. And that's why there was this, you know, um, coalition government that was formed right after Ben Ali's uh, uh, departure. And why arguably, I mean, Monica Marx argues, this is why the democratic transition um, is still on track for all of its faults, all of its uh, problems, it's still, Tunisia is, is actually a democracy. So why is that case so important? Because like you say, Joey, I mean, these differences exist. Um, sectarianism is not a purely doctrinal or religious issue. There is such a thing as secular sectarianism. Uh, there's this essay uh, in, you know, I'm borrowing that phrase, Assad's secular sectarianism from Mohamed Dibo. Uh, for an, an essay he wrote for Open Democracy magazine. I mean, sectarianism is used by all sorts of so-called secular regimes. And, and we know that in the case of Lebanon, right, you have very proudly secular so-called Marxists who have a soft spot for Hezbollah. I mean, this is a, a phenomenon. Um, I mean, I don't know how much that may have changed now in the aftermath of the 2019 uprisings where Hezbollah came, came out, if you will, as, you know, counter-revolutionary, literally beating up protesters and denouncing them, etc. But the point is, I, we don't mean to fetishize. We, the book is about the, sec, is about the phenomenon of sectarian conflict, but we're not fetishizing sectarianism. We, in fact, in the introduction, and Nader really deserves credit for this because he was very steeped for years in the literature on ethnic conflict. And in the introduction, there's a whole section in which we place the phenomenon of sectarian conflict or sectarian, sectarianization in the Middle East in the context of the wider um, scholarly literature on ethnic conflict and intercommunal conflict. So sectarianism or sectarian conflict is not really necessarily a, you know, it's, it's not a totally unique, it's certainly not unique to the Middle East. I mean, there's sectarian conflict in Northern Ireland. Famously, there was sectarian conflict in Bosnia and in the Balkans. Um, but even sectarian conflict is not 
itself is not some completely unique problem. It's perhaps, it's arguably part of a wider, uh, uh, it's a subset of a larger phenomenon of intercommunal conflict or group conflict, ethnic that includes ethnic conflict, uh, as well as other forms of conflict. Yeah, I will say that uh, I think the episode that will come out before this one will be with uh, Aida Hozic, and it will be a comparison between Bosnia and Lebanon as well. Um, next, I mean, Lebanon is supposed to have its elections next year. Whether it actually happens or not, I have no idea. But assuming it does, this is going to be a question. This is going to be. I'm. I'm I really. I'm. I am a bit uh, discouraged by the fact that it's not more of an active question now. But I mean, I guess we can forgive people because the crisis is so severe right now in Lebanon. But it's just it's just a fact that it's inevitable. Um, even with uh, supporters of these uh, sectarian parties, I can like from firsthand experience know like I just know that there are people who would call themselves supporters of Hezbollah, for example, that are a bit more flexible in in how what they mean by that. You, there are people who will say that they support quote unquote the Mukawama, the resistance, but they have issues with the party. And if they have issues with the party, that means that they are, in theory, willing to vote in a different way. Okay, I guess what I'm trying to say is that this is it's just going to be an inevitable problem. Whether this is for the next elections, again, whether they do happen, I mean, Lebanon has postponed elections many times, or even, you know, in a distant future, near-term future, whatever it is. And it, it is also not an easy one, but I do appreciate the Tunisia experience. I would also say like the Sudan one, although it's, it's a different phenomenon, but having a pre- like an organized movement in one way or another it doesn't have to be perfect, doesn't have to be anything. There are lots of problems with it. I don't know it that much, but I know that there are issues with it. It, it just shows that there are clear um, differences. And indeed, in Syria, one of the one of the many reasons why it was very co- complicated for people to create these local councils and you know um, revolution, local revolutionary committees, et cetera, et cetera, uh, I mean, they did manage to do this, but it was incredibly difficult to do so because all of the unions and the student groups and all of these guys were completely ex- exterminated during the, the Assad regime's, um, you know, hegemonic rule. And indeed, Assad, you know, just replicated this in Lebanon for that matter as well, destroying the unions in the 90s and so on. So, you know, even as, you know, my my word salad here, it's, it's, it's just at different levels, these things are happening. And Danny, I guess to you, I, you know, in the preview pic that I used on Twitter, uh, just trying to be provocative as they sometimes enjoy doing, I put a photo of, of Khamenei, of Assad, of Assad, of Nasrallah and Mohammed bin Salman. And of, I mean, again, being provocative a bit, but you, you did mention an important critique um, about how this can suggest that uh, that sectarianism, uh, sorry, sectarianization uh, only works top down, that this is just, you know, geniuses behind closed doors, manipulating people, et cetera, et cetera. And we did already answer part of that question by mentioning the sectarian uh, entrepreneurs, et cetera, et cetera. But would you mind just expanding on that critique, bringing back that term for those who don't know what it means and just making that, like fleshing out that point of how this is a multi, I don't know how you describe it, multi-dimensional, multi-vectored uh, issue. Yeah. Um... I think that the main, you know, our, the main focus of our book is on what you might call top-down sectarianization or regime-driven sectarianization because the Syrian case looms so large for us. As I was saying earlier, that was kind of the um, impetus for the for the book um, in in to be in at the beginning. Um, and, and I think on balance, if you really were to sort of do a quantitative analysis, I think you would find 
that um, authoritarian regimes are the are, are are probably responsible for the vast majority of the sectarianization process across the region, but certainly not all of it. Let me give you a, I mean, you have to drill down into at the level of popular opinion, right? Yes, uh, regimes manipulate popular opinion and they control media, which is very important. And so they have this megaphone where you're they're just broadcasting messages um, uh, and scaring people. That's absolutely true, but it, let's face it, you know, people are also not completely passive and people have, you know, you can, Lisa Wadeen has a brilliant discussion in both of her books, um, Ambiguities of Domination and the new book, um, Authoritarian Apprehensions. She talks about how Syrians actually learned very, very well to, to, um, uh, to, 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 to interpret and distant, create this ironic distance from the propaganda of the Assad regime. I mean, they know, uh, people know propaganda. Uh, and they don't really believe it, but but they behave as if it were true. Um, the uh, the fact is that you know we have to look at the the level of popular opinion. And I'll just give you a salient example that we use in the book. In 2006, it's kind of amazing to to even remember this, but in 2006, according to uh, Arab public opinion polls, the two most popular figures in the Arab world as you know, just obviously your, most of your audience will know this, but I just want to emphasize, you know, the Arab world is, is overwhelmingly Sunni, um, you know, vast majority. And the two most popular figures, according to these polls in 2006, were Nasrallah and Ahmadinejad, both Shia, one not even Arab. Um, and we know why they were popular that particular year. I mean, uh, you know, that was the year that Israel was um, bombing the hell out of Lebanon. And Ahmadinejad seemed to be this, I mean, obviously Hezbollah, its whole identity was based on resistance to Israeli and American aggression. And then uh, Ahmadinejad was this fiery so-called anti-imperialist, I would say, um, fake anti-imperialist, but that's another discussion. But the point is, just a matter, that was only what, um, you know, 15, 16 years ago, uh, 2006. I mean, it's kind of amazing to imagine flashing forward a few years that the two most popular figures in the Arab world would be Shia. That, that's not gonna happen after the Syrian civil war. That's not um, in the cards. And so this is just an example of how a popular opinion has, has changed. I mean, there's a lot of studies of messaging on Twitter. This is not only regime, you know, uh, troll armies, and uh, top-down messaging, but really like popular level, uh, you know, on Twitter, you can see the saturation of anti-Shia messaging shoot way up after, um, you know, especially after 2011. Um, and as the Syrian war got uglier and uglier, I mean, we know this, that there is, there is anti-Iranian, anti-Shia sentiment in, in the Sunni Arab world, Sometimes those two things get conflated, by the way, right? So there's a sort of Arab nationalist, anti-Persian, ethno-nationalist sentiment that gets conflated with anti-Shiism, depending on how the messaging works. But, you know, what I'm trying to say is, Joey, yes, there's top-down regime-driven sectarianization, but people have a choice of whether to take the bait. And the fact is it has taken root. So it may have started as this top-down messaging, but the fact is once it takes root, once people start believing 
the once they internalize sectarian narratives and implot themselves in those stories, there's a brilliant chapter in the book by Adam Geyser that I'm borrowing that language from. He talks about this, um, how people, he uses narrative identity theory to show how sectarian logics and narratives can actually take hold at the level of the individual psyche. And once that happens, once you get people that deeply, you know, in 2006, they loved Nasrallah and Ahmadinejad, no problem. Who cares if they're Shia? They're resisting Israel. They're re resisting America. Good. Seven, eight, nine years later, death to Iran, death to Shia from the same exact people. How does this happen? And it's not just the regimes. People internalize it. And the, 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 even if it starts with regime propaganda, once it's internalized, once people believe this stuff, it takes on a life of its own. And it can be, it's not permanent. It's not irreversible. There is, you know, we can, as we've discussed, there is the possible, the prospects for desectarianization, post-sectarian, anti-sectarian, you know, coalition building. But it's a uh, a very tall order once these things take root. It's it, it's it's a uh, it's a serious problem. I also add just quickly. Um... Nasrallah not just switched gear completely, or at least rhetorically, before sending his men to Syria, but in the early days of the Arab Spring, he was actually supportive of the Arab Spring. He he had he does you know statements that you can find on YouTube, his speeches, which I unfortunately watched most of them, uh, of you know him endorsing the Tunisian one and the Egyptian one and the Libyan one. Uh, of course, that changed when it came to Syria for reasons that I think most people know by now. But uh, I will have I will try and have an episode specifically on Hezbollah one day. Um, but this was very clear. And Nasrallah himself has been, until relatively recently, even post-intervention uh, in Syria, he tends to be fairly careful about the language that he uses. Uh, Syria is when he started using terms like takfiri, which before he didn't really use as much. And he would be very careful before, again, to say things like, you know, uh, our Christian brothers and Sunni brothers and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. This, this was part of his narrative. And that's why he was relatively to the others, you know, more sophisticated and more coherent, I would say, rather than sophisticated, but just more coherent in his internal, or at least in the image that Hezbollah was putting forward. And this is part of why, you know, fast forward to 2019, for me, it wasn't much of a shock because I'm one of the, unfortunately, one of the few Lebanese who's pay, paying attention to Syria. But in, in Lebanon, you know, there, there was still this narrative. I can say this in, you know, uh, from firsthand experience. I was one of the co-organizers of the 2015 movement, it, there was a lot of, of hesitation about mentioning Hezbollah, or at least mentioning Nasrallah by name. Hezbollah was a bit more flexible, but mentioning him by name, not because people necessarily liked him, but because there was still this image or this illusion that they are sort of the exception. They, they, they are, there's a different trajectory to the Shia story in Lebanon, as uh, which is true. No, I'm not saying that's not true. It is true. There has been part of how... Um, um, Part of Hezbollah's strength, and this you know does tie into to 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 what we're talking about, has been that it was the 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 hegemonic party within a community that historically was was oppressed, and of course they became hegemonic by assassinating all of the other alternatives, as we know, the communists, especially in the south. And I, I will I will have also episodes on this, by the way. So I guess all I'm trying to say is that. It's because in the same way that in 2006, Nasrallah was the most popular one and, you know, now one of the, definitely one of the most hated figures, uh, not just in the region, but definitely in Lebanon. Um, 
this can change again. I mean, probably not, but in theory, it can change again. And I guess I'm emphasizing, as, as you two do as well, that the fact that this is a process, it changes the actual factors, actual actors, actual, you know, people have agency in all of this. And on the term, or just on the point of internalization, I see this all the time. I see this with, with activists that I know, I won't mention names, and no one does it on purpose, but it, it just becomes something like when the... Um, so when during the uprising, during the protests in October 2018 and since then, when you would have these usually younger men from the suburbs, quote unquote, from Dahir, from Khandak al etc., that would be sent essentially to beat people up. I, of course, it's, it's understandable that people would be afraid and that there would be all of this. But then what, what gets mixed with that is just the generalization that people have about members, quote unquote, of that community. What's extraordinary for me is not that, you know, you might have someone of a Sunni background or a Christian background or a Druze background having these biases because that's how sectarianism is internalized. But many Shias would have those biases as well. I mean, it's, it's just something like, I mean, now with Lokman Slim's assassination a month and a half ago, it's sort of coming out even more in some ways. And you have the uh, positive, um, let me phrase it carefully, the positive side of uh, a backlash against Hezbollah is that you will have many anti-Hezbollah Shias who were previously scared and are now less scared or, you know, calculate things differently. But then you would have others, you know, within that same community that sort of go the other extreme and say that there's no way of changing things. There's no way of tackling Hezbollah. They're just too strong, too, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't want to mix these debates too much because Hezbollah is too strong. There are concrete problems with uh, that specific party. But the phenomenon itself, I guess what I'm trying to say, is not just about Hezbollah. There's just the hegemonic party within that specific um, um, movement or specific uh, politics. I, ho I hope I was coherent with all of this. I don't, so far, do you have any comments on this before I move on to the next question? I have a very brief one, which is just that what you described with Nasrallah supporting the Arab uprisings at first. That was also true of the Islamic Republic of Iran. It praised the Tunisian and Egyptian uprisings. Its statements about the Egyptian revolution was actually very paternalistic. It was sort of a backhanded support that it provided. It was like um, our, our brothers, our Egyptian brothers have finally um, you know, 25 years later, after the Iranians overthrew their Western-backed dictator, uh, the Egyptians have now finally, at long last, figured it out and followed suit, like putting themselves in the vanguard. But nonetheless, the point is that officially Iran supported, at least rhetorically, the Tunisian and uh, Egyptian revolutions, and of course supported the Bahraini uprising, although that Iran's role in that was totally exaggerated by Saudi Arabia and by the, the Bahraini regime. But the point is Iran posture, uh, positioned itself rhetorically on the side of the protesters and against the regimes, right, until Syria. And there was this famous uh, moment where um, then President Mohamed Morsi was in uh, Tehran for the um, the conference, uh, the summit of the uh, non-aligned movement in what year was that? 2012, I guess. And um, yeah, it was like fall, summer, fall 2012, maybe May. And uh, they, uh, it, Morsi gave a speech um, and he denounced the Assad regime's repression. 
in uh, again, it's it's br brutal repression against uh, unarmed demonstrators in uh, Syria. And the he, Morsi didn't know this until later, but the Persian translator, the Arabic to Persian translator for his speech actually changed Syria to Bahrain. So it sounded like Morsi was denouncing the Bahraini regime's repression against unarmed demonstrators in Bahrain and left, they erased, they scrubbed Syria from it. When Morsi found out about this, of course, he was enraged. Um, and so this was the fault line for both Hezbollah and the Islamic Republic was Syria. So I have a question about post-sectarianization. I'll, I'll leave that one to the end. So another relevant um, phenomenon to our discussion, at least when it comes to authoritarianism more broadly, is one which I've discussed with Rohini Hensman uh, a couple of months ago, and uh, that's episode 58, namely this very shallow notion of anti-imperialism. I've called it alt-imperialism. Some people, you know, Leila Shami calls it anti-imperialism of idiots. Uh, Rohini Hensman called it pseudo-anti-imperialism, you know, whatever. But one angle I didn't get into as much with, with Rohini is how how much linked to Orientalism uh, this phenomenon also is, uh, or these approaches in general tend to be, even as they borrow obviously anti-Orientalist language. I mean, they they love to quote Edward Said. They always do that, but then they would you know do Orientalism anyway. So without focusing too much on individual names, if that's okay, I, I tend to hate these people and I don't want to give them too much of a platform. Can we get into? this left-wing Orientalism as you understand it, and how, how can you explain it? And if you don't mind, descri describe it a bit for those who have no idea what I'm talking about. Well, I, it would be hard to avoid naming names um, because Patrick Coburn is such a glaring example of this. He's not completely alone, but he's such a unique case. Um, there was a BBC, a BBC4 uh, radio debate or program devoted to our book, Sectarianization. And uh, Madawi al-Rashid and I were interviewed and then they invited Patrick Coburn on as well to sort of provide something of a skeptical or um, uh, adversarial perspective. And I mean, I al already suspected Coburn of having this sort of left orientalist or le engaging in left Islamophobic tropes, right? And our friend Louis Proyect I have to credit him with coming up with this term left Islamophobia, which he he pointed out several years ago that, you know, there are a lot of people on the left, the Western left, who uh, denounced people like Christopher Hitchens and Paul Berman after 9-11 for using terms like Islamofascism and, and for painting a picture, kind of uh, for, for echoing the rhetoric of the war on terror and seeing Islam itself as this sort of enemy of reason and enlightenment and democracy and progressive values, right? And, and Hitchens and Berman were indeed guilty in, in many ways of exactly this, but, but Louis Proyek's point is how ironic that then flash forward to 2011, 2012, and you have the Syrian uprising and the Libyan uprising, and these very same leftists, anti-imperialist, anti-war leftists who had denounced Hitchens and Berman and as Islamophobes were themselves deploying the same exact Islamophobic rhetoric about Salafis and Al-Qaeda extremists and Islamists and terrorists in Libya and Syria, as if the secular regimes of Gaddafi and Assad were somehow a bulwark against Islamofascism or Islamic terrorism or Islamic extremism. Um, 
And it was so ironic that, that, that this, this rhetoric, this narrative of Islamofascism had migrated uh, within the very same heads, uh, some of the very same people who were denouncing Hitchens and Berman are then adopting their rhetoric and they sounded very much like the people they had been attacking. I will briefly say, if that's okay, uh, that Patrick Corgan uh, was a guest on Democracy Now! in 2013 after the Ruta massacre, after the chemical attack. And that's not that's not the extraordinary bit. That that would be bad in itself. But he was a guest on Democracy Now now alongside Razan Zaytouneh, and that was a few oh, months. And that was a few months before she was kidnapped by Jesh Islam in in Eastern Ghouta. And unfortunately, that's still one of the most disturbing um, foot. I mean, in, interviews, if you want to call them that, because Razan was was shocked. Was uh, you know she had just witnessed she she witnessed the massacre. She went there immediately after, if I remember correctly. And uh, Democracy Now! unfortunately had uh, Cogburn on, on to sort of have, you know, both sides kind of situation. And he uh, questioned as to why would Assad do this? You know, it wouldn't benefit him. He knows that Obama would bomb him if he does this, et cetera, et cetera. You know, fast forward a few months, we know what happened to that red line, i.e. nothing much. We know that Razan was, it's a separate event, but unfortunately Razan was kidnapped not soon after. Unfortunately though, that narrative didn't really go away. There was no accountability to what he said. Uh, you know, he said that Obama would surely bomb if this was happening and therefore Assad wouldn't do this. And that, I just opened it now, like that interview is still up and people can watch it if they want. I wouldn't recommend it because it's very disturbing, but it's, it's what I unfortunately, um, you know, had to go through at some point. So I just wanted to mention that, yeah. Thank you for that. I remembered exactly what I was going to say now, and I'll try to be brief about this because we don't want to give Coburn any more airtime. You know, he, he, he it's really not, uh, he doesn't he doesn't deserve it. But in a nutshell, if you go listen to that BBC4 radio debate that Madawi al-Rashid and I had with Coburn, okay, it was basically Madawi and me against Coburn. Um, and you can link to it in the program notes, Joey. Uh, Coburn not only uh, defend, essentially defends the Assad regime, but he more bizarrely, I mean, we knew that he was kind of in that camp, right, with Fisk and many others, but more bizarrely in this larger kind of debate about sect, the, the role of sectarianism, um, he says things in that debate like, well, you know, uh, Postel and 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 Al-Rashid are arguing that sectarianism has been overused as an explanation for all of these conflicts in the Middle East, but actually I think that it's been underused. I think people are afraid of talking about the role of sectarianism, which is really the fundamental driving force of conflict. And he goes on in the case of Bahrain. This was the most bizarre thing because we know a lot of leftists defend the Assad regime in various ways. I've never ever heard this before. I had never heard anyone who thinks of himself as a leftist defending the Bahraini regime, but this is basically what he said. He said, you know, cause I was arguing uh, as I already did right here in this discussion that, you know, the Bahraini uprising was a democratic uprising, not a sectarian uprising. It included members of both Shia and Sunni um, Bahrainis, and it was really about the same things that the Egyptian and Tunisian uprisings were about: democratic rights, dignity, social justice, and Coburn's, and, the, and that it was crushed with, uh, you know, extreme violence. And Coburn basically defended the Bahraini regime and said, "Well, what were they supposed to do? I mean, you have a majority, a, a Shia majority, 
in Bahrain. Demo what does democracy mean in a country like that? I mean, if the regime were to allow, uh, grant the demands of the protesters, it would be voted out of existence. And so, I mean, this is like the, sec basically he's saying sectarian identity is destiny. And in society, same thing with Syria. Like, you know, you have a Sunni majority. What is the Assad regime supposed to do? If, the, if you had democracy, if Sunnis took over, you know, uh, the minorities would have to leave or they would be killed. I mean, it just, so basically what he's doing is he's adopting the Orientalist, sectarian, essentialist, primordialist narrative that Thomas Friedman and Bill O'Reilly and all of these characters do, which is he's saying basically what drive, unlike Europe, unlike the West, what drives the Middle East fundamentally is sectarian passions and atavistic religious emotions. They're not enlightened, they're not civilized, they're not ready for democracy, they're not capable of democracy. And so you need strong men regimes. You need authoritarian leaders and dictators to keep these sectarian savages from murdering one another because that's what would happen if the lid popped off. This is a familiar argument, but it's almost exclusively associated with the right, with defenders of dictatorship, right? To hear a so-called leftist like Coburn making this argument was truly bizarre. So I ended up writing a piece about this called Left-Wing Orientalism, The Curious Case of Patrick Coburn, which you can link to in the program notes if you want. But I think this is part of a, a wider and deeper problem. And I'll just give you one more example. In 2018, I believe it was, um, late 2018, maybe early 2019, when Trump announced that the US was going to withdraw troops from Syria. Um, a lot of people in the anti-war movement celebrated this, whatever their criticisms of Trump on other issues, they said, this is wonderful uh, and he should be praised. Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul, a reactionary, libertarian, isolationist, racist, um, horrible human being, Republican of Kentucky, Senator Rand Paul issued a tweet praising Trump's decision to withdraw and he framed it in sectarian terms. He said, look, these people have been murdering each other since the battle of Karbala and we have no business there. Pull the troops out, let the savages kill one another. Now, what that was not surprising at all. That's Rand Paul's worldview. What was surprising and deeply disturbing was how many anti-war activists and so-called progressives retweeted that tweet and said, yeah, we disagree with Rand Paul on some things, but he's right on this. Here you have a bunch of so-called leftists who, like you say, may quote Edward Said on one day. Actually, in this case, these are people who probably don't read very much and don't actually have any idea what Edward Said's arguments were. But you know, people who would in principle stand, think of themselves as anti-orientalist, anti-imperialist, anti-colonial. And here they are retweeting a racist, Islamophobic, essentialist, orientalist message from a right-wing senator because it happened to support the withdrawal of US troops. Okay, you can support the withdrawal of US troops. You can agree with Trump on that without retweeting and therefore amplifying an explicitly orientalist, racist 
message by Rand Paul, but this is the sickness, Joey, uh, that, we're, that we're dealing with here. There are so many people on the so-called left who are so confused, so muddled, and we have such a red-brown fusion going on with, I mean, you're one of the leading commentators on this and critics of this phenomenon, but when you have Glenn Greenwald, who had, you know, how many followers on Twitter, now he's basically come out as a Trumpist and a, you know, kind of, um, I would, I, I think of Glenn, Glenn Greenwald as basically a fascist at this point. Um, th there's a lot of people though on the left who are, who are amplifying and reproducing this sectarian orientalist message, whether they realize it or not. And it's very widespread. Um, I just wanted to say very quickly, Joey, you've opened up a can of worms here talking about the Western left and Syria and the Arab Spring. I mean, I, I would recommend that you actually, if you haven't done already, do a special program on this because- Oh, I have, I have. You have already, okay, I'll I, have to listen I, to I, it. I have many of them, unfortunately. <laughs> it's just okay, like... <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I mean, it's, it, it, I would just say very quickly that, you know, for a lot of these people, they don't really care or have a deep interest in the internal struggles for democracy and human rights in the Arab world. They have an ideological cause. And that's what's front and center. And they will manipulate the facts and even invoke sort of, you know, Orientalist language um, in order to uh, defend the purity of their ideology. Okay. Well, I mean, anyway, this is the, this is the book section now. So uh, would right. you mind recommending three books and explaining why? Yeah. So um, I think one of the people who've written sort of very eloquently and uh, powerfully on the politics of sectarianization is someone who's in our book. I think he's one of the leading scholars and that's Fanar Haddad. He has a, a relatively new book out, I think it's about a year and a half old, called Understanding Sectarianism, um, Sunni-Shia Relations in the Modern Arab World. And he provides what I think is the most sort of comprehensive uh, theoretical uh, understanding of the different manifestations of sectarianism that goes beyond sectarian conflict, but also talks about you know, um, um, sectarian identity and how sectarian identity often overlaps with class, with regional issues. Um, I think it's this, the chapter three of that book is the most, most sophisticated um, uh, comprehensive analysis of the topic. So I strongly recommend Fanar Haddad, who I think is a lead, leading scholar. Um, you mentioned that you're having uh, Osama Makdisi on your program. He has a new book out called Age of Coexistence, the ecumenical frame in the making of the modern Arab world, <clears throat> where he tries to revive uh, a history that's often been lost. Uh, in terms of the existence of pluralism and coexistence that existed within the Arab world and in parts of the Ottoman Empire. Um, I think it's an absolutely outstanding book. I'm glad that you're having them on the program. I'll, I'll certainly listen to that episode. And finally, um, there is a wonderful book um, uh, that, that I happen to blurb called Sectarianism Without Sex by Azmi Bashara, the prominent Palestinian intellectual that uh, provides sort of a very deep historical, nuanced understanding and study of the roots of sectarianism, looking at its origins in the West and in the Arab world, drawing upon Benedict Anderson's <clears throat> concept of imagined communities and Charles Taylor's concept of social imaginaries. I think it's probably the most um, intellectually, historically um, uh, sophisticated study of sectarianism, you know, rooted in his, the historical sociology theory and dynamics of sectarian conflict that has been published. Um, it's out in Arabic, uh, 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 an English translation will appear very soon uh, by Hearst in London. And so those are the three books that I recommend. So the first one 
that I would recommend is Peter Gay's book, The Cultivation of Hatred. This was um, one of the volumes in the late historian Peter Gay's um, five volume uh, study, The Bourgeois Experience, Victoria to Freud. And the cultivate, first of all, I remember when I first saw this book in college, um, I just loved the title. I wanted to know what, what is he talking about? The cultivation of hatred, which is really what our, what sectarianization is all about. It's about the cultivation of hatred. Now, in the case of, of this book, Peter Gay is talking about the explosion of nationalism, ethno-nationalism in Europe in the 19th century, um, in World War I and beyond. And, um, but he, what, what I really love about Peter Gay's um, analysis of this phenomenon is that he uses psychoanalytic insights to explain um, the demonization of the other, um, to explain how, how easily people can be manipulated into um, hating uh, and even going and, and killing um, their, their perceived adversaries. Um, and it's really ultimately about the, the, the self-destructive nature uh, of nationalism and its, its pitfalls. But I really highly recommend this book, The Cultivation of Hatred by Peter Gay. Um, and for the other two books that I wanted to recommend, they really have nothing to do specifically with sectarianism or with the theme of our discussion today. But they're just two of my favorite books um, about politics. And one is um, by David Scott, the, uh, the Jamaican anthropologist, David Scott, who teaches at Columbia University. The book is titled Conscripts of Modernity, The Tragedy of Colonial Enlightenment. It came out in 2004. And it's an, it's an extraordinary study um, of post-colonial history in which David Scott tries to make sense of um, what he considers the tragedy of post-colonial failure or the post-colonial condition. And he suggests uh, to make a long and complicated story short that he, he, he offers this really rich rereading of CLR James classic, um, The Black Jacobins, um, CLR James study of the, of the Haitian revolution. And what David Scott suggests in a nutshell is that we, we in order to make sense of the post-colonial condition and the failures of many post-colonial regimes, we need, to sh we need a paradigm shift from romantic anti-colonialism, which has defined so much of the anti-colonial and post-colonial genre, if you will, and we need a sense of the tragic. And, in, and in, or, in order to develop this sense of the tragic, he borrows heavily from both CLR James and Hannah Arendt. Um, it's a book that's really, really instructive and thought provoking. And I think still, I, it, it, it's, it's a book that I, I don't know how widely read it was outside of uh, academic circles, but I highly, highly recommend it. And the third and final book that I wanna recommend is a biography of Victor Serge uh, by Susie Weissman. Um, Victor Serge, for, for those who don't know, was a, a really extraordinary figure. Um, he was a kind of a, a 
transnational um, Russian European figure who spent a good deal of his life in Mexico, spoke many, many languages. He participated in the Russian revolution. Um, he was a Marxist for a while and then he became an anarchist and you know, he wrote novels, he was a man of letters, he was a journalist and an editor and just lived this really extraordinary life and was part of the great sort of debates of the 20th century. Um, and was just a, a just his, his, I also just love biographies and Susie Weissman has written just a marvelous one. And, and the, the story of Victor Serge's life his political transformations, the debates that he engaged in, the circles that he belonged to. It's just such a great read. I, I remember when I first read it, I thought, you know, God, my life is so boring compared uh, to this guy. And that was a little bit um, demoralizing, but it's it's also just such a, it's such a fabulous, exciting read. Well, on that note, thank you both for your time. And this has been an amazing chat. Thank you, Joey. Great. Take care, guys. It's an honor to be on your podcast. I'm a huge fan. These times is made possible by supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support through a monthly donation, you can head out to patreon.com/slash fire these times. And if you want to explore other options, you can do so by checking out the website.